Well, how do we do that? How do we put God on display? We sang about it. The Thessalonians actually were brilliant at it. And they did it in the midst of a Greek-Roman culture that was totally uh, thought about God, thought about values in an upside-down way. Now, how have you saw the movie The uh, Night at the Museum? It's about a... Ben Stiller plays a security guard, and as he's walking through the museum, he has different scenes of different cultures. And he gets to look into these different display cases, and they come to life. And he gets to see how they interact, their personalities, their culture, what's important to them, how they handle conflict. And in one sense, he has a sense to look at all these different people and see their lives like display cases. I want you to imagine that you're strolling with the museum with me, and we're going to peer into a particular scene, and it's Thessalonica. And we're going to look at this one particular scene where we see an old theater, an old Greek-Roman theater right here in Thessalonica. This is actually archaeological find there that has been uncovered today. And as you look into this theater, you see uh, not Owen Wilson, but you see what looks like a Jewish rabbi. And his name is Paul, and he is preaching, and he is reasoning with the unconvinced, and he is talking, and he is dialoguing, he is passionate And yet as he's talking, some of the Hebrews are upset that he's using their scriptures to say that Jesus is the Messiah. Some of the Greeks and Romans think, well, that's interesting, another God to add to our pantheon. And some are saying, wow, this is the God. This is the God we've longed for. The Jewish Hebrews, a huge group of them, are pretty antagonistic toward Paul. So they begin to come and force him out and yell and scream at him. And again, as you're watching through the display case, you're struck by his graciousness, his boldness, his ability to answer their questions. They will ultimately run him out of town, and you will again get to see how he interacts in the midst of difficulty. He will actually head up from Thessalonica, which is where he's at. He'll head over to Berea. When he's in Berea, we're told that the ones that are in Berea were more fair-minded. They seem more open than those in Thessalonica, in that they will receive the word with readiness. They search the scriptures daily. Look at that. Every day. Let's find out if this is so, to find out where these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Knowing that Paul was reaching the influencers and the leaders, not also a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men, leaders of the community, were being drawn toward this, this message that Paul had by looking at his life. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard the word of God was being preached by Paul over in Berea, apparently they have no lives. And nothing going on, no jobs. Because they had time to get up, go all the way over there to Berea and stir up trouble in the crowd to try and get this message stopped. So as we peer into that display case, we watch Paul's life, the meaning and the purpose and the boldness. It made me think to myself, if my life was a display case, if your life was a display case, what would people see? Would they see people that search the scriptures daily? People with boldness who try and convince the unconvinced, who put their discomfort to the side because they so want other people to know God. If my life was a display case, what would people see at work? What would people see when they watch me parent? What would people see when they watch me as a spouse? What would people see on how I handle stress? What would people see about how I care for the poor? How resilient I am under pressure like Paul was. We're going to look at four display cases today. And show that God wants you and I to put him on display in all arenas of our life. We're going to look at one over here and one here and one here and one here. And these four display cases are four ways that you and I can put God on display during ordinary living. In 
First Thessalonians, it begins in chapter 2 by showing our first display case is conflict. That how you handle conflict is one of the greatest ways that you put God on display. For you yourselves know, brethren, he says, that our coming to you is not in vain. We had a purpose. For even after we had suffered, and here he is in conflict, he's suffering. We suffered before, and we're spitefully treated. I mean, this is not just physical beatings, but spite and venom coming out of other people. And that's what happened back at Philippi. And you heard about, you saw my life, you heard my story, you saw how I interacted with those in Philippi when I was treated poorly and suffered. As you know, we didn't back down. We weren't scared. We were bold in our God to speak the gospel. And this word is going to show up so many times in this this chapter. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God even in the midst of much conflict. Have you ever thought about the gospel showing up in the middle of a fight? In the middle of a disagreement? It's one of the most powerful ways that the gospel will put your life on display to those who are watching. And let me show you, tell you, people are looking up against the glass and they're looking at how you and I handle conflict. Now, what's interesting about how Paul handles conflict is that a lot of what the Thessalonians heard about him came from the story of how he handled conflict back in Philippi. Now, Philippi uh, was named after Alexander the Great's father. And there he is right there. He's very stoned in this picture, so don't worry about that. He, uh, this is actually when we were in Turkey, we had a chance to see one of the displays of Alexander the Great's father, Philip. So Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's dad, Philip. Now, Philip is very interesting because he was the kind of guy who was a man, but he wanted to be deified like the gods. So he was a man always trying to prove and, and make life all about himself. Well, the Greek culture would often have statues of the gods, and the gods were always naked because they were, you know, they were the gods. Well, at a wedding, I said birthday last night if you're here, it was actually a wedding. At the wedding of his daughter, he decided, Philip, that he was going to put himself in the place of God. So they prayed into the, the wedding a statue of Zeus and a statue of, of Demeter and a statue of Apollo and a statue of Asclepius. All these statues came into the gods, but here's what he did. Philip made a statue of his own naked body. Can you imagine if you're the bride? Hey, Dad's coming in with that naked picture of himself at the end. Oh, wow. Thanks, Dad. But this was very significant because as the statue came in, it was him saying, I have deified myself. I want you to think of me as God. As Aristotle uh, investigated his death, he would actually be killed there at that particular wedding. He said he was killed there. And one of the things that was shocking is that someone who was man would put himself in the place of God. But that was the philosophy that was going on there. Conflict is about exalting yourself. And to that church in Philippi, Paul will write in chapter 2 about what's called the kenosis passage. That Jesus, who was God, did not consider that something to be exalted, but put himself and became a man. And he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And to a town that was known for exalting himself to get its name, he said, Jesus comes, and though he is God, he comes to serve others. In the midst of conflict, you put your comfort on the side to do what's best for other people. This is who our God is. And how we handle conflict, how we bring this different philosophy to our lives will be striking in whatever culture we live in. In December, I was reading about Rick Holley. He's a CEO of a timber company. And part of his contract was that he got his, uh, 
yearly bonus, and that was $1.85 million worth of shares that would be vested coming this February. But the stocks just hadn't performed the way he had hoped as a CEO, and so as his board presented him the stocks, he took them, and then he turned back to the board and said, now this isn't a request, I want you to return these, I am not going to take these stock options. Well, part of their deal was to keep him long-term. That was part of what their plan was. And he said, you know, I want the stockholders to know that I don't think I've done, that our company and my leadership has done justice by them. So I want to return these stock options um, for this year because I want to get us back on track. And, of course, that story made it all through the news because it was so striking. Someone who handled potential, you know, stockholders being mad in conflict in such a, such a bold, responsible way. And it's true for you and I as well. Whatever arena we're in, people are going to see that. You know, we had uh, one of the first really awkward moments. We have lots of awkward moments, but really awkward moments is Christmas. We've never had divorce or separation in our family before, but we had one of our relatives is, is in the middle of separation. What made it awkward over Christmas is because both parties were at our house, just about five hours apart. And so we were trying to be the church, trying to love on, on both of them who were hurting and and trying to say, well, just because you might be divorcing each other doesn't mean that we're divorcing either one of you. And what does it look like? And I just had never been in that situation before. And asking myself, what does the gospel look like in these kind of sticky conflict situations? That's why, again, I love this phrase that Paul's using here. We were bold to our God to speak to you the gospel, the good news of God in much conflict. Now, let me get real practical here. It's not only powerful, but it's practical. Dr. Gottman, in his book, The Relationship Cure, identifies four things that destroy relationships. Critique, contentment, uh, sorry, contempt. So critique, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. He says it doesn't matter your personality. It doesn't even matter if you're a bad communicator. Marriages, he studied over 26 years, last unless you allow these four characteristics that are acid to relationships. Critique, when you begin to really criticize, not what happened, but the person. Contemptuousness, where you begin to think you're better than someone else. Your son, your daughter, your boss, and you talk to them with that sardonic or sarcastic tone. I can't even believe you thought of something like that. Defensiveness and stonewalling. Now here's why the gospel, it's not just some prayer you prayed 20 years ago. It is something that can be lived out in relationship. It addresses all four of those. Because when you find yourself criticizing somebody else, the gospel says, you know what? You know who could criticize you is God. He knows all your secrets, all the past, all the present, all the future. Yet God is so gracious that when he critiques us, he does it with mercy and compassion. And if God has been so compassionate and gracious to you, how can you not bring that level of compassion and graciousness when you're critiquing someone else? That contemptuousness that says, morally superior, my ideas are better than you. You're a moron, that sort of tone that's in there. Well, the gospel humbles us to say, no matter what you think makes you better than other people, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. All equally in need of his grace, all equally in need of his forgiveness, all equally in need of his leadership. And that doesn't change the fact that you're arguing or having conflict, but it does bring a humility to it that begins to extract the poison out of contemptuousness. The gospel deals with defensiveness. Because when someone brings something up to you, your instinct is, that's not true. That's not how it happened. You're being too sensitive. I can't believe you're the problem. Right? That's what comes out of us. But the gospel, in the midst of conflict, the gospel says, first, my heart is desperately wicked. Two, first John tells me that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. Okay, I'm probably deceiving myself. 
And the gospel says, I want to be open to the fact that I probably in conflict did something wrong. And I'm secure in Christ enough that this critique of my actions doesn't hit my identity. And it just lets your defenses down enough that you can begin to listen. But you've got to learn to practice the gospel in conflict. And stonewalling is, well, I just don't want to talk about it. I hope it goes away. But when you see Jesus Christ and God, who did everything to reconcile with us, he used judges, he used prophets, he used kings, he sent the Messiah. He's just ruthlessly saying, I'm going to find a way to get your attention. If that didn't work, try this. That didn't work, try this. That didn't work, try this. And if you see a God who did not stonewall our problem, but instead tried to reconcile again and again and again, you say, I don't want to try again. I don't want to talk. That's not my instinct. That's not what I grew up with. But in light of what he did for me, the gospel, I'm not going to stonewall, but I'm going to pursue reconciliation. It's powerful and it's practical. That's our first display case. Our second display case is our motives. People are looking into the display case and they're saying, what really motivates you? I smell a fake. I smell something inauthentic. And Paul says, you didn't smell that with us. For our exhortation did not come from error, didn't come from uncleanness, nor was it in deceit that we were trying to lie. But as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, there it is again. The gospel is what motivates us. Even as we speak, we weren't just trying to please other people. It wasn't about fame. It wasn't about, about having a great reputation. We wanted to please God. That was our motive. And God tested our heart and found that that was true. That is what motivated us. That's what we did and why we did it. Now, the word gospel was not a new concept. In the Greek-Roman world, there was a gospel of the Romans. When the Romans came to town, they came with a gospel of good news. And the good news is, Rome is here, the Pax Romana, we have roads to travel that are going to be secure. The, 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 the good news, the gospel of Rome, is that we will bring water, we will bring supplies, and there was a lot of good news that came with Rome. But the motive of Rome was always under question. In fact, you've probably seen a lot of these Greek-Roman um, gateways. You know, these gateways aren't for defense, right? There's no drawbridge. These actually were the entrance to tell you about the culture, to tell you about the good news. The good news is there's beauty, there's culture, there's water, there's supplies. But that gate was a way of telling you what was important to the culture. You see, not everyone could walk through the gate. If you were the emperor or one of the senate, you could go through the center. But only that. If you were part of the upper class, you could go through the right or the left. But if you were the working class or the slave, you weren't even allowed into the gate. The good news for some was the shunning of others. And the motive often was about using some people to exalt yourself, much like Philip. And so the gospel of Jesus comes in and says, wherever you are in life, this new philosophy, this new good news is a motive of saying, I'm not here to please others or to, to get my own, toot my own horn or get my own fame. I am here to spread the good news of the value of all through this new culture. And you can test my motives in that. In fact, Paul continues and says it this way. For neither at any time did we use flattering words. We weren't just trying to flatter you, as you know, nor is a cloak for covetousness. This wasn't just us trying to come and get money from you. God is our witness of our motives. Nor did we seek glory from, either from you or from others, that we might make demands as apostles of Christ. Now, this to me is very fascinating. As Paul, um, Doug mentioned last week, the letter to the Thessalonians is one of the few that Paul doesn't mention. He's an apostle at the beginning. 
What he's saying here is it would have been ethical. It would have been appropriate. It would have been actually okay for us as an apostle to come to you and say, we're apostles. We're going to be preaching. You need to pay our salary. That would have been appropriate. We could have made demands based on our apostleship, but we were so wanted to make sure, since you didn't know us, that our motives were pure. We so wanted you to make sure that we were above board, that we came to you, we didn't even demand what was due us. Now, when it comes to conflict, or even comes to motives, isn't it the opposite of our instincts? Usually our instincts are to make our demands. You owe me, you owe me. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. He's saying it's ethical, but sometimes God calls us to something even above ethics, to put our demands aside to make, meet the needs of others. In fact, how would that handle, help you in conflict if instead of demanding what's yours, you instead of focused on the needs of others? That you allowed God to test your hearts. What's really going on here? And I love how Paul does it, and he does it so honestly. This word glory is very interesting. Let me clean up some of my mess here. The word glory actually means weight. He says, the thing that weighted us, the thing that motivated us was the glory, the credit would go to God, not about us or our reputation. And all through the Bible, it talks about everything in life. Good things fade. Fame fades. Money fades. A gimmick that you loved and couldn't wait to get. A car that you, that you couldn't wait to get. The house you couldn't wait to get. It's great. It's got glory. But then it fades. About a week later, about a month later, about a year later, it's like, man, that's the thing I really wanted. But the glory of God, living for something bigger than yourself that doesn't fade, that is what brings meaning and purpose to our life. The glory, the weight of who God is. I was reading an article about uh, ESPN about Michael Jordan and how he just he hit 50. And in hitting 50, he's really reflecting on all the things that he lives for. And he said, I would do anything to be able to go back and play basketball. Anything. He said, the things that I live for are fading. He had this safe in his room and he couldn't remember the combination. He had all these famous things in there. And he had nine attempts. And at the tenth attempt, it locked down permanently. It would require to be, to be blown up to open. So he finally guessed right in the last one. It was his birthday and his basketball numbers or something else. It opened up. He pulled out his 1984 Olympic gold medal. He said it was just faded. He's been sitting in that safe for years. He had six championship rings. He didn't, he didn't even know where they were. The uh, Bulls had given him a case to put his rings in. And he found he had one on and one was in a junk drawer and one I couldn't find. He's running around the house trying to put his rings that he had lived for back in this case. In fact, his security team has names for all the folks they protect, and their code name for Michael Jordan is Yahweh. Because he's so used to being the most important person in the room, and people working around his every whim. There's nothing wrong with, with, with these things, business, career, and accomplishment. But what he found is that they fade, they don't last. And Paul said, we're building our motive on the, the very thing, the very importance of living for something that lasts, the glory. Our third display case is care. How do we care for others? Paul says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Now, already, this is Paul, the apostle, who is whipped, shipwrecked. This guy has taken a beating and then some. This is a man's man. And yet, of all the metaphors he could talk about his leadership... Of all the ways he could talk about his, his way in which he interacted with the Thessalonians. He didn't use a, a warrior. He didn't use a battle. He didn't use army. He used a nursing mother to describe his leadership style. I was gentle. 
as a man. I cherished as a leader. Just like a nursing mother cherishes her children, that's how I felt towards you. I affectionately longed for you. This is no stoic man. We were well pleased. Now look what he wanted to be pleased to do. I want to impart to you not only the gospel, but I knew the way you really get the gospel is to impart our own lives. I shared my heart. I shared my dreams. I shared what's important to me. One of the most powerful ways that we will model the gospel for our friends, for our family, is by bringing this level of care and concern to our relationships. People see there's something different about that. It's, it's not a devaluing or a, a, of masculinity. It's a redefining of it to say it's still got strength, but in that strength, there's gentleness. It, it, it's still got power, but in the power, there's a cherishness, ability to speak to emotional needs that really transcends the culture and transcends what they grew up under. And it may be that Paul uses this nursing mother, mother metaphor because most of those cities, when you came to the gate of the city, this one is from Ephesus, but it was it's true of the Greek cultures. Because they had a caste system, you had to keep a certain amount of money to prove that you were in that part of the, of the hierarchy or caste system. So when a new child came, often the mother would come up to the husband and say, should we keep him? And if the husband turned his back, the mother would say, well, that means we're not going to keep him. And she'd walk out to the gate. And here at the gate of the city, they would leave their baby. So you came into the city, the gospel of the Greeks and Romans. One of the first things you encountered was some people go, come in, some people can't. And you would see abandoned children there. Might be two, might be ten, depending on the day. And into a culture that was used to seeing that, Paul says, I want you to know the kind of leadership and gospel we bring is one that cherishes people, nourishes people, affectionately longs for other people. We believe in the emotional needs of folks and we speak to those needs. There's another tool I'll bring up occasionally that I think is so practical here in thinking about how to play this out, this idea of Paul. They've discovered that there's, a, there's like a, a cup, a biological cup in our brains that holds our emotion. And for many of us, the positive emotions begin to get pushed out because of negativity. We get filled with guilt and fear and anger and loss. And so there's just not enough room in our hearts for those positive emotions. And that the Bible describes that each human being is designed for a need for these emotional needs. We have a need for attention, some of the care about what we're doing and be excited about what we're doing. A need for affection, a need for appreciation. We're biologically and soulishly built for a need to be blessed, to have a blessing. As Jacob wrestled with that angel, bless me. We have a need for comfort. As it says in Corinthians, we comfort others with the comfort by which we have received from the, the God of all comfort. We have a need for respect, to have our ideas respected and security and support. And part of this caring leadership is being to look at the people in our lives and say, I get a chance to speak into them. I get a chance to appreciate them and speak words of affirmation into them. In a moment when somebody is hurting, I get a chance to comfort them and be a conduit of God's grace and care right here and right now as I cherish gently and specifically and affectionately into their life. And what happens in someone's heart when those needs go unmet? Well, if you have a need for attention as a kid, you show mom and dad your picture, and what do they do? Well, that's fine. Yeah, I'm too busy. You might try and make it better, perform really well. Maybe the picture's good enough, Dad will give me attention. Or you might tear it up and say, well, I guess I'm not a good drawer. But what's going on in your heart is a sense of loss. And then a sense of anger. I'm angry 
that my needs weren't met. I'm angry at what you did or didn't do. Fear. Next time I go to look for attention, I'm fearful it's going to happen all over again. And then eventually you say something you shouldn't say and guilt lives up and all this stuff pushes out the positive emotions. On the other hand, if you had somebody who spoke into your life, a boss, a friend, a father, a mother, or if you get to be the kind of person like Paul who speaks this into Thessalonica and something powerful happens, you begin to look at the folks in your life and say, I want to be someone who says, you matter. I care about what you're, I'm excited about what you're excited about. Someone who says affection, that is something God's designed us with. And I want you to know you matter. And I want to appreciate you and tell you why I appreciate you. You know what happens? You don't get filled with loss. You get filled instead with, with joy. And, and then that doesn't lead to anger, but hope. And instead of fear, perfect love casts out fear. Your heart gets filled with love. Instead of guilt, you have grace. And now your whole life is filled with positive emotions. You have a whole tank to give to others. And you see, if we begin to practice the gospel... It's very practical. We say, I get a chance to speak into the hearts of the human beings around me. And it's transforming. But Paul mentions another one. And it's going to be work. But I tell you, one of the ways God has taught me about this care is through um, working with my son, Quinn. You know, I share a lot of the struggles that he has, but it's been amazing over the last six, seven months to see him begin to talk. He's got several uh, words, several two words to begin to initiate, and it's been through a whole community of volunteers and friends who've helped. Well, at night, I come down, and I'll sing Jesus Loves Me to him. And so he loves to have the blanket over his head at night, and he's got a little smile, and he'll put a blanket over And I'll say, do you want Daddy to sing? Sing. So I'll start singing, Jesus loves me, this I... No. For the Bible tells me so. I'll get into the chorus. And, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I go, oh, I didn't know if I'd ever hear his voice. And I just, I'm hanging on it and going, oh, my goodness, he's learning that God loves him through what I'm doing. But I'm actually learning how God loves me through what he's saying. And so many times God has said to me, Chad, you know what you're, you're learning by caring for someone else? If you so hang on every word, how much more must I hang on your words? Chad, I just long for you to pray. I long for you to share. I long for you to tell me about your day, to share gratitude for what I've done. Chad, I'm just, I'm longing to hear from you. In fact, this next month, we get a chance to show that care in a tangible way. We have an initiative we do every year as a church called Feed My Starving Children. We as a community will come together and over a week's time we'll feed about 300,000 meals will be packed. We're going to start signups this week at horizoncc.com. And many of you will invite your friends as you've done the last couple of years. Friends who don't believe in our God, don't believe in the Bible, don't believe in Jesus. They think it's sort of crazy talk to me. You know, crazy talk, crazy talk. You guys believe in a God who came to earth. But they will come and they will see we, how we care. How we as a community have packed over a million meals at this point. For those who are starving, because we believe and care for people who don't believe the way we do, who are hurting. And folks will come and they will meet other friends here at the church, not because of what we believe, because of our care. It will draw people, woo people, to the God we love. That display case is powerful. Our fourth display case isn't care, but it's work. Look what Paul says. For you remember, brethren, our systematic theology. No. You remember, brethren, our great sermons. No. He says, you remember our work ethic. 
The greatest display case that you have for those unconvinced people in your life is how you work. They will see how you interact. They will see how you relate. They will see how you handle conflict. They will see how you, you handle excellence versus laziness. But they'll also see how you handle a graciousness versus perfectionism. And it will be on display on the greatest mission field you and I have, which is work. How we labor. How we toil. And look what he says. You remember our laboring night and day. We could have come and said, listen, we don't have time to work. We're preaching. But instead, we came to the city square. We came to the marketplace and we worked. We wanted to build relationships with those people in the city. We wanted to model great craftsmanship in what we produced. And as people said, well, have you got the tents that, that, that Paul makes? Man, he makes great ones. And every time I go over there, we end up in a great conversation. Paul was in the world modeling a great work ethic. When we were in Ephesus, we got a chance to see one of the areas uh, of where the market was. So you'd build a canopy like so. And then you would sell as people pass by like this. This was your uh, workplace down here. And you would live often up in this section. So that was your house. And below it was your workplace. And Paul said, we want to live amongst you. We want to work amongst you. We didn't want to be a burden to you. So he says it. Same thing in Thessalonians. Um, the other one, Second Thessalonians. We didn't want to be a burden to you. We want to work. And in our laboring, in our toiling, in our work, we preach the gospel to you. The gospel comes out as people watch how we behave, especially at work. So, if someone was strolling through the museum of our life, they peered into how we handled conflict, they looked into our motives, and they peeked at our care, and they looked at how we work, what would they conclude about God? Is there anything attractive about our life? If my life is a display case, what do people see? Well, let's check our display cases. I love how Paul ends this passage. He says, you are witnesses. You watch this. You looked into this display case. God also is looking in. I love that idea. That God is watching, not in an I'm going to get you kind of way, but God is watching saying, oh, put me on display. I can't wait to see how, how I can use this moment if you put me on display. God is watching. Unconvinced people are watching. And look what they're watching. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved. How we behave is a display case for our God. How we displayed among you who believe. As you know, and look what he says. We exhorted you. There's that again. We encouraged you. We knew you had a need for appreciation. We exhorted you. We comforted you. We knew you had tough stuff going on. And we didn't, we weren't stoic about it. Ah, it's got to be tough. And we entered into that. And we charged you. We challenged you to go to greater heights. We, we charged every one of you. And look what he says. As a father does his own children. Another Paul says, here's what fathers should do. Fathers should be exhorters, comforters. Also, he's like, no, that's where you go talk to mom, right? Dads aren't comforters. That's mom work. No, he says, fathers should comfort and fathers should charge that all of us would walk worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Hmm. Now, how do you walk worthy? It's the gospel. You realize that Christ has made you worthy. You don't try and earn the worthiness. You realize, I am worthy, and I want to walk it out. That is the power of the gospel. So check your display cases this morning. Maybe yours is conflict. You would say, the gospel has not shown up in my conflict in a long time. I didn't even think to put the gospel in my conflict. 
So you say, God, I want to begin to use the gospel to take on those four horse of the apocalypse. Maybe for you, it's your care. You say, you know what? I really do operate like exalting myself and my own demands. God, I want to care. I want to learn how to speak into the emotional needs of those around me. Because that's not something that was modeled by my parents or by my father or by any leaders I knew. Maybe it's your motives. You say, you know what, God? I want you to search my heart. Because my motives have not been pure. Or maybe it's work. God, I've never thought about using my work as a chance to showcase you. I want to use that. I'm praying for opportunities. I'm praying for conversations. I want to go and apologize to some folks so they can see what grace looks like lived out. As we close today, I want to give you a tool to help you in your journey. I found uh, over the last couple of years, if I don't make a plan to memorize Scripture... I love how those Brians, as we began, said they search the Scripture daily. So in your program today, we have put together some memory cards based on the book of Thessalonians. These are little cards that you can put on your mirror. You can put on your, uh, on your uh, car. I know some people put it up there by the, by the speedometer. Um, some people will, will put it on, actually stick it on their uh, steering wheel. Uh, don't, don't memorize while you're driving. But we want to give you tools so you can begin to search the gospel out and apply it to your life. So use these over the next two months. We're together in this passage and begin to let God change you and inspire you from the inside out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And thank you that you have chosen to use the inefficient way to change the world by using and working through us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today.